Coffee does more than just help you wake up in the morning. It's helped waken up a lot of people politically for centuries, though at a cost. Find out more on this episode of Delicious History. Welcome back. My name is Dave Militello. Delicious History is a weekly podcast designed to help us understand not just how history has affected food, but how food has affected history. For more information, check out our social media accounts on Facebook and Instagram, both at Delicious History Podcast, our website, delicioushistorypodcast.com. And if you'd like to support the show, check us out on our Patreon at patreon.com slash delicioushistory. For those of you who checked out our Instagram this week, you probably got a good look at uh, the coffee corner in our kitchen. Um, I had to convince my wife to give me permission to do that because, although she's very proud of the collection we've made over the years, she felt that people might get the wrong impression. But we have a Keurig machine, a drip machine with a grinder attached, an espresso machine with a steam wand, a French press, what's it, um, uh, two coffee grinders, three if you count the one on the drip machine, uh, plus a carousel for our K-cups. You know, this is especially impressive because we live down here in Ecuador and a lot of the stuff they don't have and has to be mule down. You know, one great thing about living here, uh, we live up in the mountains, is that we have tons of fresh coffee producers right here. So we can get some amazing coffee literally grown right down the street, but they don't have like K-cups. So I guess it evens out in the end. <laughs> I mean, the good thing is that uh, we use those reusable filters uh, and we just fill it with a local coffee, so it's more environmentally friendly anyway. Yeah, anyway, where was I? Oh yeah, political intrigue. Uh, not yet. Coffee, coffee, uh, is one of those really popular drinks around the world, third uh, after tea and water to be exact. And while a lot of us do use coffee to get our day started, and maybe your digestion moving, it's meant a lot more to certain people than just the morning drink in certain parts of the world. In fact, it can be said that modern democracy would not have even existed without this bean juice. One of the things I find most fascinating about coffee is that while we all might assume that it's an ancient drink that somehow made its way into the modern world, it's actually not true. It's certainly older than anyone listening to this episode, I assume, but it's not as old as you might think. In fact, although coffee became big in the Western world before tea did, it actually came on the scene thousands of years after tea. As far as how coffee came to us, there's a lot of legend and very little in the way of facts. For example, the famous story of how coffee was discovered was by a 9th century Ethiopian goat herder named Kali, who noticed that all of a sudden his goats were jumping around and dancing, even staying up all night after eating some red berries off a bush. He decided to try it himself and found himself to also have the same energetic properties after eating them. He then decided to bring it over to some monks at a local monastery, as one does, and after describing what happened, they thought it was from the devil and threw it into a fire. Of course, this only caused the beans to roast and give off that signature beautiful smell. The monks then decided that there was no way something that beautiful could have come from the devil and decided to preserve it in water for some reason. But then finding the water changing color and having a tempting smell itself, they took a sip and hence coffee was born. Yeah, that uh, didn't happen. Um, <laughs> in fact, I find it hilariously convenient on so many levels that it's 
most definitely made up completely. Uh, first of all, people first started to chew coffee and not to drink it. Uh, like we do today. And secondly, the first time anyone uh, recorded the story was in 17th century Europe. So yeah, there's a pretty good chance none of that actually happened. What we do know for a fact though, was that it does appear that coffee is native to the Horn of Africa, particularly what is known as modern day Ethiopia. As previously mentioned, it appears as though coffee was chewed at first for its energetic properties, though when exactly it was converted to a drinking liquid, we don't really know for sure. But the one important takeaway from this is that this story really tells us just how recently coffee is to humans. The first reliable accounts we have of people drinking coffee is in the 15th century in the Arabian Peninsula. So we're really talking about something that's only been consumed by humans for just over 600 years compared to the possibly 4,000 years that we've been consuming tea. But once it hit the scene, oh boy, did it have an effect. I mean, think about it. While there were other substances that were used up to that point to change one's state of mind, caffeine wasn't really something widely consumed in the Western world at that point. And one thing that played a role in coffee's acceptance in society was that of a certain group of people who benefited from having this boost of energy. Nowadays, we can think of how a lot of us need coffee just to get started in the morning. You know, like Nancy in accounting, who has that mug that says, don't talk to me until I've had my second cup of coffee. But something we have to realize is that in the past, especially in the ancient world, life would oftentimes end when the sun went down. The main reason for this was because while they did have lamps, or at least torches in most parts of the world, these were mainly seen in major cities. And for most people, going out at night was not really something necessary or doable on a regular basis. As a result, people typically just stayed at home and generally went to bed after sunset. Even at home, the only way to have artificial light would have been through the use of oil lamps or fireplaces, two things that consumed fuel that weren't to be wasted by the average person. Of course, there were exceptions to this, especially when it came to young people going out and drinking alcohol. But, but that won't really be a factor for the first part of this story, as we'll soon find out. There were people who did want to stay up at night in particular those in religious or scholarly circles. In fact, the first documented use of coffee was by Sufi Muslims in what is today modern-day Yemen, near the port of Mocha. Sufis are known as belonging to what is known as mystic Islam, and many of their practices involve chanting or praying at night. Obviously, this could be something that can be difficult if you're getting tired. But with the use of coffee, they were able to stay up late into the early hours of the morning, and as a result, even felt that coffee was given to them directly by the Prophet Muhammad or the Archangel Gabriel. But still, coffee was still somewhat underground at this point, as many felt the Sufis themselves were not actually Muslims, but rather some sort of a heretical offshoot, and therefore their drink should not be consumed by faithful Muslims. But that didn't seem to last very long, since not only was coffee starting to become more widely consumed by the general populace of the Arabian Peninsula, but now there was a new development that made it much more, let's say, interesting. The coffee house. But before we go any further, there's a concept we should mention at this point. That of halal versus haram. In the most basic sense, these words translate to allowed and forbidden, respectively. While halal is generally used almost exclusively when talking about food, Haram is more of a general term, just meaning things that are forbidden by Muslims according to the Quran. Of course, that, that does include food. Some people compare the prohibitions of food in the Quran to those of the Torah, 
However, Jewish prohibitions on foods are typically more detailed and the list is much longer than those in Islam. The most important things to remember when it comes to prohibitions in the Islamic world is that both the preparation of food, such as how an animal has been killed, as well as the type of food, such as not being allowed to eat pork and some other animals, are essential parts of a halal diet. Just a side note, I grew up in an area, we had a ton of Turkish and Lebanese people in halal markets. I'll tell you, when given the choice, I'd always eat halal meats because I always felt they had a better flavor. I don't know, it could be psychological too, you know, knowing that they were perhaps treated better in life and slaughtered in a, um, in a better way. But man, I'll tell you, never had a bad halal meal for whatever reason. One of the other major haram foods in Islam is alcohol. But the reason why alcohol is considered haram is important to understanding what happens next in our story. See, the Quran never explicitly says, do not drink alcohol. At least not in the English translations that I can find. Rather, it uses the word intoxicant. Again, I've never read the Quran in its original language, nor do I claim to be an expert in the field, but out of the five or six translations that I could get my hands on, the text I find always uses that word intoxicant. For example, quote, Satan only wants to cause between you animosity and hatred through intoxicants and gambling and to avert you from the remembrance of Allah and from prayer. So will you not desist? End quote. While most people would take that to mean alcohol, it does leave quite a bit of space to add additional products as well. After all, what exactly is an intoxicant? Some Islamic scholars have taken this to mean not just alcohol, but other common substances, such as tobacco due to its nicotine and kat, another plant with stimulant properties coming out of Ethiopia. Okay, you got that? Good. Because we're going to need to understand this before understanding what happens next. Coffee houses. You love them, I love them. But they became big trouble for rulers at that time. And there's a few reasons for this. First of all, people liked to go to coffee houses because they didn't want to or didn't know how to make coffee at home. Also, it gave them a chance to spend time with other people and socialize when they normally wouldn't have an excuse or reason to do so. Remember that since alcohol was outlawed throughout the Muslim world, people weren't just able to go to a local bar or pub or tavern like you were seeing in Europe at the time. So the fact that they were having this sort of association in a secular setting was a new thing for them. Also, the fact that they were drinking a stimulant was pretty fun, since they didn't really have anything like this before, and also it allowed them to stay up later and have more energy. But not all people thought this coffee thing was a good idea. In fact, in the Arabian Peninsula, where coffee drink was born, important cities such as Mecca completely banned coffee houses and coffee altogether in some cases. Many of the Imams found coffee to be problematic because of how it could fit into the category of intoxicants as mentioned in the Quran. Even though the effects of coffee and alcohol are quite different, being a stimulant or depressive respectively, it was still changing the body and mind and they felt that it was against the spirit of that command if not the letter. And uh, they kind of had a point in some ways. I mean, after all, Muhammad was talking about alcohol being associated with certain things such as gambling and bad conduct in the Quran. These coffee houses were not centers of piety, as men would often get together to drink coffee, laugh, sing, and sometimes get themselves into trouble. By the way, I'm very explicitly saying men here because women were not allowed in coffee houses. 
Although they were expected to make coffee at home, and a man not being able to supply enough coffee at home was actually grounds for divorce in some cases. Get it? Grounds for divorce? Going back to the idea of raucousness in these coffee houses, I can attest to that as a young man. (laughs) I really didn't drink all that much when I was young, and so my friends and I would go out and we'd go to coffee houses on the weekends and into the early hours of the morning, you know, just to go on the town. I remember one night I drank three red eyes, which is a, a cup of brewed coffee with a shot of espresso. And when I came home at around two o'clock in the morning, I could have swore that the pile of clothes sitting on the chair in my bedroom came to life. Believe it or not, having a lot of caffeine can actually lead to hallucinations. But of course, you have to be extreme in that case. And man, we used to get in all kinds of crazy things after getting all hyped up on coffee. Maybe even more so than if we were drinking alcohol. So, I mean, I can understand the kind of crazy things that must have been going on in these coffee houses in an area where alcohol was not allowed. This led to an all-out ban in Mecca that lasted from 1512 to 1524, with many neighboring areas following their lead. Just like with the prohibition of alcohol in the United States, people were still drinking tons of coffee behind the scenes, so at the end of the day, the ban didn't really matter except to close down the coffee houses themselves. After the ban was over, coffee houses exploded in the Arabian Peninsula, with the first coffee houses being opened in Damascus in 1530. Up north, Istanbul, not Constantinople, well actually at the time they were known as both, so I guess it doesn't work there. Anyway, so Istanbul, we'll just go with that, became the center of the coffee world for the Ottomans, who were known to be quite a fan of this rocket fuel. But this is where things take a very dark turn in our story. See, in the Arabian Peninsula, the people at the coffee houses would talk, keep up with the news, play chess, and to a certain extent talk about politics. But since their politics were often something mixed with religion, it didn't cause too many issues with the social order of things. After all, an uprising in the city of Mecca might be considered sacrilegious. For the Ottomans, however, this was not the case. Let me set the stage. The beginning of the 17th century was a very turbulent time for the Ottoman Empire. At the beginning of the century, Ahmed I ruled for about 15 years, which wasn't a bad run, considering what would happen later. When he died, most likely from disease, his brother Mustafa I took the throne. The issue with Mustafa was apparently... How do I put this? He wasn't all there, mentally. Uh, For example, he was known to throw coins at birds and fish and and to take the turbans off his viziers and pull on their beards. But none of that seemed to matter because he wasn't really seen as anything more than a puppet for his mother and other family members who were pulling the strings. He was later disposed of, though not killed, which was often the custom, and his nephew, Osman II, took over the throne as a teenager. Osman tried to make some reforms within Istanbul and the empire as a whole, but at the age of 17, he was strangled to death by conspirators. Mustafa I came back to the throne for a short time, executing everyone who had been involved with the death of his nephew. His mental health didn't seem to improve, however, since he used to do other strange things like search for his dead nephew by knocking on all the doors in the palace and calling his name. This was obviously not someone who was in a position to rule an entire empire, and was certainly a bad face for the empire to the outside world. So his mother made an arrangement that he would leave power if his life would be spared, and another one of his nephews, Murad IV, would take the throne at the age of 11. I'll tell you, whoever made that arrangement with her was true to their word because he appeared to live for a few more years before dying naturally of epilepsy. 
So they say, but who knows? I mean, back then, people were executing everybody for every reason you can imagine. In fact, there were rumors that Murad ordered his execution so that Mustafa's mother and Murad's grandmother wouldn't somehow gain power. This was a whole bunch of Game of Thrones stuff. Well, I mean, I assume I've never seen Game of Thrones. Murad is really the star, or victim, if you will, of this story. With everything going on, it's reasonable to understand why Murad would be apprehensive of any sort of threat to his power. After all, it seemed like just about everyone and everything was out there trying to kill him at any given moment. With this type of environment during his upbringing, Murad became a very hardline sultan, not only imposing strict Islamic law, but going well above and beyond and adding regulations. Sometimes his decisions had a firm basis in the Quran, and the people of the Ottoman Empire had merely become lax in certain areas. But other prohibitions or regulations had ulterior motives. Being a very paranoid person, he made it a habit to dress like commoners and to walk out into the streets of Istanbul to see what people were saying about him and his government. It just so happened that one day he walked into one of the famous coffee shops in the city and sat in the corner, not saying a word, just listening. What he saw infuriated him. He saw the men in this coffee house singing and dancing, appearing to be intoxicated in some way. But he wasn't so much angry with these men as the ones that were sitting politely at the tables. These were the people who were talking with complete clarity of mind and sobriety about all the weaknesses of his government and the one leading it. It was also implied that they were somehow talking about a revolution or uprising of some sort. One of the main reasons why this terrified Murad was because many of the people who frequented these coffee houses were a group of people known as Janissaries, who were the elite guard of the Sultan and a large portion of the standing army. If these people were sitting around all day drinking coffee and complaining about the Sultan, this would spell bad news for Murad. After all, whenever a leader of the Ottoman Empire was disposed or murdered, it was generally at the hands of the Janissaries. Murad knew this wasn't going to do at all. If talks like this continued, he wouldn't have to worry about his relatives, as the people of the city, or even his own guards, would take him out first. So he immediately put a strict ban on the consumption of haram substances in public, such as alcohol, and added tobacco and coffee to the list. But coffee was especially watched. While the prohibition in the Arabian Peninsula seemed to be more or less a guideline since so many people were ignoring it, Murad was making sure that everyone knew just how serious he was. To start off, he had all the cafes closed and many of them destroyed. He then set a very strict punishment for people who were caught drinking coffee in public. The first time, you were going to get a good beating, and if you were caught a second time, well, you were going to be sewn up into a bag and thrown into the Istanbul Strait, so there wouldn't be a third time. But Murad was so concerned that this threat wasn't being snuffed out that he decided to get directly involved. You see, if some random government official saw you, that's when you'd get the beating. But the Sultan himself decided to put his commoner clothes on again and go out into the streets. If he saw you drinking coffee, off with your head. Some reports said that he did the executions himself, while others said that he went out with a professional executioner. But that distinction probably didn't matter once you were caught. We're not talking about a casual stroll to decapitate a couple people on a pleasant Sunday afternoon. You know, the generally accepted way of killing people for drinking coffee. No, accounts at the time estimated that due to the coffee prohibition, at least 10,000 and up to 100,000 people were executed. 
But I don't know. I mean, that last number seems pretty high to me. But all I can say is I'm sure glad I wasn't there. You know, but to be perfectly fair, Murad probably wasn't all that bad. After all, he wrote poetry. And then started some wars and then totally died in his 20s from liver failure due to being a raging alcoholic. Because, of course he was. And I hate to say it, but... We all know that people who typically are really hard-lined against particular moral issues are oftentimes one of the worst offenders themselves. And with his death, his brother Ibrahim became sultan, and continued the family's reputation for political chaos. For centuries after Murad's death, sultans periodically enforced or made rules against coffee houses, since every time they seemed to relax those laws, people would get together, and some important person in the palace would lose their head. But by the time the early 19th century rolled around, there were plenty of other places where revolutionaries were meeting, and so coffeehouse bans slowly fizzled out. However, that's just talking about the Islamic world. As many of these bans started to take place in the Ottoman Empire and in the Arabian Peninsula, people who made their living off coffee started to direct their attention to Europe, where both coffee and coffeehouse culture exploded, and with it, the rise of their own revolutions, which will be the topic for next week's episode. You know, this episode is a bit of a milestone because we're finally starting to do multi-part stories like I wanted to do before. Now that the show is starting to find its footing, we're able to try out new things to, to keep things fresh. One thing I did want to acknowledge, though, is that for whatever reason, more than a few podcasts and YouTube channels came out with episodes about coffee uh, in the last few weeks. Um, now, for those who aren't aware, when we do these type of shows, we typically have a schedule of episodes, weeks or months in advance, as well as doing the research, recording, editing, all that good stuff before we actually publish. So I don't think that me or anyone else doing these shows and coffee at the same time we're trying to copy each other. It's just a little coincidence there. You know, it's kind of like going to a party and five of your friends are wearing the same dress. But you know who wore it better. Until next time, this has been Dave Milantello who reminds you that we all write our own history. So make yours delicious. Delicious.